Welcome to Tonebenders, a sound designer's podcast. Let's take a listen. Here are your hosts, Dustin, Timothy, and Renee. Batteries not included. Hello, welcome to Tonebenders. My name is Timothy Meerhead. This is our second Soundbites episode. If you missed our first, Soundbites is a new format for our podcast. We will be continuing to put out our regular full-length episodes monthly, but we'll be adding some shorter single-subject episodes in between under the Soundbites banner. This is a way for us to get out interviews, experiments, and ideas that might not fit into the hour-long format. This episode is also, again, part of the DesigningSound.org monthly themes. The theme for May 2014 is Surround, and today's interview fits in perfectly. At the recent National Association of Broadcasters conference in Las Vegas, I was able to catch up with Will Files, sound designer and re-recording mixer, based largely out of Skywalker Ranch. Will was at the conference to take part in a presentation at the Avid booth detailing his experiences when mixing for Dolby Atmos. Will is just about the most experienced person around on this new surround format. He was at the helm for the very first feature released in Atmos, Pixar's Brave. Will was in Vegas on his day off from mixing the upcoming Dawn of the Planet of the Apes film. Although he was contractually obliged not to talk about that film in our interview, he did tell me that it is really, really good. We were able to sit down in the back corridors of the huge convention center and have a great talk. Please forgive the walla in the background. The NAB conference is super busy and there's nowhere to go to get complete silence. So without further ado, here's Tonebenders one-on-one with Will Files. Okay, so we are sitting deep in the bowels of the Las Vegas Convention Center in the corridors of power for the Avid, and we're sitting here with uh, Will Files. Will, you're a sound designer and re-recording mixer that's here in Vegas. You're doing a demo of Atmos, is that? Uh, Actually, I think I'm mostly here just to talk. Just to talk? Yeah, I think uh, I'm going to let other people demo it, and uh, I'm just going to talk about how we're dealing with it these days in post. Cool. So uh, before we get too deep into Atmos, do you want to just give us a brief history of your career path and how you got started? Sure. Uh, I went to film school in North Carolina. Um, Before that, I dabbled in post-production in high school. I worked at a little, uh, you know, local commercial house that had one Avid, and I thought that was the coolest thing. And uh, so then I went to school at the University of North Carolina School of the Arts. And um, when I graduated there, I lucked out and I got an internship with Randy Tom at Skywalker Sound. Um, I'd met him at a conference uh, at some point in my college career and managed to parlay that into an actual internship. So I basically spent the next five years almost being his assistant. And then he helped me transition into becoming a sound designer and a supervising sound editor. Cool. So I just sort of kept going from there. And are, are you full-time at Skywalker? As much as anybody is. Um, you know, we're all freelancers. So uh, there's not really, you know, anybody who's full-time at Skywalker. But the thing about Skywalker is that it's basically the only game in town in the Bay Area. Uh, and not to say that in sort of any negative kind of way, because it's also probably the best place to do what we do. Um, and it's a pretty magical place to work. But, uh, you know, I work in L.A. sometimes, I, I work in New York sometimes, uh, you know, wherever, wherever the projects are and wherever it makes sense to do them is where I'll go. Just going through your credit list, you've got credits as a sound effects editor on Mission Impossible, amongst others, sound designer, Thor The Dark World, uh, sound supervisor on Mud, Nine, many other things, and re-recording mixer on many, many things. Do you like having your hands in all the different pots? Or? I really do, and I think it's sort of the nature of, of where the work is going now. Um, the titles are meaning a little less and less uh, because the tools are allowing the lines to blur quite a bit. So, 
you know, even on movies where I've got a sound effects editor credit, I usually do some design as I'm cutting, and I do a lot of mixing as I'm cutting, and that's part of it. Part of that helps me just get to the track to where I want it to be. You know, I'm, I'm not going to sit on my hands if I if I can EQ something and I know that's going to help it. You know, give the feeling that I want it to give. I'll just do it. And part of that's, you know, working at Skywalker. There's always been a blurred line between those, all those job titles, and I think that's been to the benefit of the work. Uh, and, and you basically Skywalker in general, but I think the industry also it's, it's full of people who really should be called sound designers, and that would include mixers, that would include sound effects editors, and that would certainly include supervising sound editors. At least in the sense that they're the ones that are often contributing ideas and orchestrating the soundtrack. You know, a sound designer is often used just to be someone who makes sounds. You know, someone who makes the cool, you know, explosion or the cool alien voice or whatever. And that's obviously valid. But I think that you really also have to acknowledge the the creative input that the other people in the process play. And I, I think because the tools, you know, Pro Tools specifically, but 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 even you know what's happening on uh, some of the other platforms, you're you're able to do things that blur the lines inherently just because of the technology. For example, I saw a demo. There's a new feature on the Euphonics with Yukon where you can actually, as a mixer, sitting behind the System Six, the new board, I can turn a knob and slip the audio on the track from the board, from the actual console. So I don't even have to wheel over and grab a mouse or have my editor grab a mouse and move the clip for me. I can park on it with my playhead, move it with a knob, and you know, advance or retard it right there. So it's like yet another example of how the distinctions are all being blurred. You know? And I think it's to the, to the benefit of soundtracks in general. The thing about Atmos that I think is, it's obviously, I don't know if infancy is the right word. It's been around for a few years. but. Everybody knows about it, but there's still a limited amount of people who've actually got their hands on it and yeah. really dug into it. And you're one of those lucky people who have. First of all, what makes you most excited? I, I was very lucky to have done the very first Atmos mix. Uh, Brave. Uh, yeah, Brave was the very first Atmos mix. And um, it was kind of a big experiment. I mean, we'd done a few clips. We had, we had remixed a clip from The Incredibles, which uh, I wish we could play for the world because it turned out really, really cool. Um, we played it for Brad Bird, and he goes, "Can we can we just do this to the whole movie?" And of course, the the Dolby guys said, "Sure," and you know, we'll see if that ever comes to light. But anyway, you know, doing the very first one was really exciting because it was this big. It was like casting off the shackles. You know, it's like suddenly you could literally put a sound anywhere you wanted in the room. And there's a learning curve there too because because you can put a sound anywhere in the room it doesn't necessarily mean that you should always put every sound everywhere in the room. We went a little too far at first on purpose. We sort of said, okay, let's break it. Let's let's say like, what if we just go for it and make it nuts? And we spent a couple weeks doing that, and then we played it all back. You know, where we played the whole film. We said, oh god, this really doesn't feel like the movie anymore. This kind of feels like a like a ride. Drawing too much attention. to Exactly. Yourself almost, it's sort yeah. of yeah, and it's like any tool. You know, once you sort of uh, you know can paint with every single color. You, you have to be more choosy about what colors you use and, and so it doesn't just end up like a big you know, mess. I think of Atmos versus 7.1 and 5.1 in terms of, it's almost like HD versus standard def. It's really like, I almost think of it more like resolution. You can approximate it in 7.1. You can approximate that feeling of something moving through the room or even all the way around the room. Uh, you can sort of approximate the sound of something going over your head 
But when you do an actual AB between Atmos and 7.1, or especially 5.1, it becomes very apparent that you're just not getting that detail anymore. And detail's a big part of it too. It's like, because you're able to spread things out in the room more, you're actually able to hear more of the mix. Yeah. We, we did a demo for Spielberg, and his first comment was, wow, the dialogue is so clear. And the reason for that is that we moved the music off the screen just a little bit, maybe 20% off just to the first row of surrounds right off the screen. And we you know, moved some of the sound effects around as well. And what it does is it leaves more space in the mix behind the screen. And so suddenly you can, hear, you can pick things out of the mix more. Uh, I remember one of the very first sort of experiments we did was we took two people talking, two totally different pieces of dialogue from two different movies, and we put both of them into one of the surround channels, just, you know, like the left surround in a 5.1. And you couldn't really tell what either of them are saying. And then if you took the exact same two people talking, and you put them into Atmos objects, and you put them into just slightly different positions in the same vector, the same corner of the room, so one was coming out of one speaker and one was coming out of the other speaker, but basically right next to each other, suddenly... It sounded like it was coming from the same place, but you could pick, you could decide which of the two voices you're going to listen to. So it's some sort of, you know, psychoacoustic effect. It's maybe partly to do a lot with acoustic, you know, interference versus electrical interference. Yeah. Uh, you know, combining, summing them electrically versus summing them acoustically. It yeah, exactly. Yeah. And and I think your ear is able to pick things out more when it's acoustically separated. Working in Atmos, obviously now you'll know way in advance that it's going to be mixed in Atmos. Yeah. How does that affect, like how far back does that decision affect? Like are you rearranging tracks in the sound edit right from the start? Yeah, I can tell you that on Planet of the Apes, this will be the first film that I'm doing as a uh, what we call native Atmos mix. For example, on Brave and on Star Trek and some of the other films, what we've done is it's an after the fact Atmos mix. We take the 7-1 mix, um, we either take the stems or the pre-dubs, or sometimes we just do it right on the final, final desk from the final automation. And we you know, choose, okay, we want to put that into an object, and we'll put that into an object. But it's, it's often taking things out of the stem where it's all, already been sort of summed together. So it, leave, it doesn't leave you quite as many options. Limits you a bit. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Whereas on Planet of the Apes, we're starting it from the beginning of the process. So as we've been going through, I've been having my editors specifically cut things for the overheads, specifically cut, you know, give me a bird flying through the forest, you know, just a single bird right here so we can pan that around the room. You know, that kind of stuff. It doesn't really take any more, much more time. It just takes a little bit of forethought in terms organizing. of... Yeah, organizing and thinking about, okay, let's, you know, color code all the stuff we want to be at most, a certain color. And we've set up our sessions so that it's easy to bust things to, to Atmos objects. Uh, as we do, we're doing a virtual pre-dub, so we're pre-dubbing in the box, but then we're final mixing on the Neve DFC. You know, between those two, it'll hopefully give us a lot of flexibility to pull things out, even during the pre-dubs, and say, okay, I want that to be an object, and that to be an object, and I really want to, I want to make this very seamless sort of 3D environment, especially with the atmospheres. I want it to be very naturally enveloping. Yeah. We're going to mix all the way through the final mix in Atmos, and then at the end, we'll spend a couple days 
mixing that down to seven one and then five one and then stereo. And to me, that makes much more sense because it's a you know highest common denominator versus starting with something in the middle and then going up and down. You're just starting with the most. You know, you're starting. It's like the equivalent of a 4K master that you're then going to make a 2K master and then a 1K and you know and so on and yeah, on. Yeah, it definitely makes more sense to you. It does, and you know what I find is that you make better decisions that way. A thing happened on Gravity. Skip Leafsay was saying that Alfonso Cuarón loved the Atmos mix so much that he wanted to go back and update the 7-1 mix based on what they'd done in the Atmos mix because it lets you hear so much more. And it also it gives you more ideas because you have a larger palette. So he wanted to go back and update the 7-1 mix, and of course Warner Brothers said, no, that ship has sailed. <laughs> <laughs> do you find that Atmos lets you play more, or is it structured in a way? Do you find it to be liberating or confined? It's sort of both, um, to, to be honest. It's, uh, it is more complex to set up versus a 7-1 mix, and that's changing. That's changing in the work that Avid's doing with, with the Phonics consoles and with Pro Tools, and it's also changing with what uh, AMS Neve and Harrison and some of the other console manufacturers are doing. So it's becoming easier. It's becoming more fluid, and it's becoming also just more standard. People are, you know, engineers around the world are getting more used to setting it up and best practices and all that sort of stuff. Um, but it does take more resources on pretty much every side. You know, I'm, I'm going to have a lot more channels on my final mix desk. I'm going to have a lot more channels on my recorder for the final mix. I'm going to have a lot more channels on my pre-dubs. Instead of you know, delivering a, an eight-channel mix at the end of the day or a six-channel mix, you're delivering a 128-channel mix, which just means that you have to keep a lot more stuff separate throughout the process. You know, it's, it's about as complicated as you'd expect. It's not like a showstopper. Um, it just means that you have to use a lot more busing. That's sort of the, 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 the main difference is uh, you're burning a tremendous amount of bus paths. So you mentioned uh, Atmos objects. Do you want to explain the difference between, I guess, busing and objects? Yeah, so in a nutshell, in the Atmos system, what you have is what they call the bed, the channel bed, which is uh, basically tracks one through 10 of the Atmos Printmaster are a 7.1 and then a left overhead and a right overhead. So that is essentially, especially on the 7.1 side, it's basically emulating what a traditional 7.1 sounds like in terms of it's a uh, field array for the sides, the you know, left side, right side, and then another field array for the left back, right back. So it's, it's a virtualized array within the individual channels of the Atmos playback system. So you can just take a regular 7.1 mix and plop it in there, and that's, you know, It'll play. But then it would be nothing coming from nothing the from the top unless yeah. you put it there specifically, yeah. right? Um, so that's the easiest way to you know make an Atmos mix. Although it's kind of Atmos light because yeah, there's exactly. no objects and no overheads, but technically it is an Atmos mix. Um, the main difference being there that in Atmos the surrounds are at 85 instead of 82 okay. dB, mm-hmm. and they're also f- uh, they're, they're so the full power and their full bandwidth. So they're not band limited in any way. So in theory, they're 20 to 20, just like the screen speakers. Mm -hmm. And they accomplish that both by advocating for higher quality surround speakers from companies like Meyer and QSC. And uh, also they're using base management within the system. So if the speakers aren't capable of reproducing certain energy, they'll either base manage them to uh, subwoofers that are in the audience, you know, either in the sides of the back of the theater or sometimes overhead in the theater. Or, failing that, they'll base manage it to the LFE that's in the front of the room. So that's the the channel bed, they call it. Um, And then on top of that, you have an additional 118 objects. Basically, you know, channels, uh, tracks 11 through 128 
Those are objects, and those are all mono, you know, they're really just mono wave files at the end of the day, but they're mono channels that have associated metadata with them. So if I say, okay, I want to put this guy's voice in an object, I want to put that in object one, which is actually channel 11, but that's just <laughs> sort of nuts and bolts stuff. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so object one, and then I'm going to pan it, you know, around the room using, let's say I'm on the AMS Neve, uh, paying around the room on a joystick. So that automation that I'm writing, that X, Y, and Z automation, uh, that's being written eventually to the printmaster. So that sound that's recorded in my master and the associated automation will actually go out into the field. And it will be rendered, they call it, but basically it's mixed. It's being mixed in real time in the theater that it's being played back in. And the reason that that happens is because every theater is different, different right? Different amount of speakers. Yeah, different amount of speakers, different configuration, different geometry. And part of what Dolby does when they go in and set up a new room is that they, they do sort of the, the basic the math, math of putting it in there yeah. and saying, okay, this is how it's going to work. But then they also listen to it and they adjust it so it's like, so the pans feel the same in every theater, you know? Um, so it will more or less take the same amount of time to get around the room, and it, it will feel like Have the same. Have you found that to be the case? Yeah, when you it's, it's, it's in pretty amazing, theaters? actually. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's very cool. I mean, for, you know, that's it's nev certainly never been the case. Um, it's always been with surrounds. It's always been a, a fair amount of uh, stabbing in the dark. Yeah. yeah, and you just say, "Oh, I hope for the best." You know, yeah. I hope they're turned on. Yeah, exactly. You know? <laughs> that's the main thing. What are some pet peeves that you have about getting tracks when you're going to mix? From editors, is there from like from a picture department? No, uh, from sound effects. Editors. Oh, from sound effects editors. Uh, my number one is when uh, sounds are cut on a stereo track. Sounds are I should just say sounds are cut as stereo when they're clearly mono. Mono, um, and either you know sometimes you get older sounds that come from sound effects libraries that are you know nothing but a dual mono on a stereo track, or you have something that was, that was recorded stereo and it has essentially no stereo imaging to it. But even more than that, it's like, if, that, if there's a sound that's not going to be bigger than one-third of the screen, let's say it's a door close or something, just give me a mono, <laughs> you know? Because I'm just going to pan it to the center anyway. Yeah. You know, it's not like a deal breaker, you know, it's, it's not even that annoying, but it's just kind of funny. I, I see so many things cut as stereo that are never, would never play as stereo. Yeah, and also it's easier to pan around a mono file. It is, it is. Yeah. It's much easier to pan around monos. And also, I don't like it when there's, there's a tendency towards, you know, when mixing in the box, people think you don't need to split things as much, like for perspective, because, oh, you just automate it on the, you know, on the change. You just automate from one position to the next. And for one thing, that is not, it's not very visually apparent. Um, you know, it's much easier to see a see track cut be coming. cut, yeah. you know. Uh, and it's also, it's not very uh, mixerly. It's not very, <laughs> um, you can't, you have to stop and make a selection and, you know, do all that. And then if you want to change it later, you have to find the exact same selection and do it again. You can't just roll over the same bit and move the, the panner, you know? And so I really think that that's something that we shouldn't lose sight of. Just because we're mixing the box a lot these days, we should still follow the same kind of things that worked well when we were working on consoles. I mean, you know, to the point that it makes sense. I mean, you don't need to split things, like, forever. But big, big changes like that, I do think it's often nice to have a an old-fashioned split cut. Mm -hmm. You were the sound designer mm -hmm. on Thor, mm -hmm. and you were also the sound designer on Mud. Right. Now, these two films could not be much different. Right. So Thor is obviously a big, sound effects-heavy, mm -hmm. intense sound film, where Mud 
the sound is just as important in mud mm -hmm. because it's creating a tone mm -hmm. that is making that movie creepy, let's say, because mm -hmm. it's a creepy movie. Good. So I just wondered if you could talk to me a bit about the differences in your approach to mm -hmm. those two types of films. Yeah, I, I would say that a film like Thor, um, well, first of all, it's fun to do both kinds of movies. You know, I think that I always try to do as many of those different kinds of movies as I can within a year because it keeps you fresh and it keeps you on your toes. And also just because they're both fun for their own reasons. The, the thing with a movie like Thor is that it's, it's a lot about sound creation and making interesting sounds and making fantastical sounds, you know, things that you know, don't really exist. I often tell people, if they ask me what I do, and I say I'm a sound designer, and they say, what the heck is that? I, I usually say I, I make sounds for things that don't exist, like robots and aliens and spaceships and magic. Magical hammers. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> so you have to, you know, that's a fun challenge because you have to think about how you want the audience to feel about this hammer or this you know, evil energy or whatever it is. And you have to try to give it some personality so that it, it's memorable and, and it makes the audience feel a certain way. It's maybe more focused in terms of how you're making one specific sound that's going to try to do that versus a movie like Mud, where it's not about these fantastical moments and these specific sounds that you're making. It's more about orchestrating you know, a tapestry, if you will, of vibe. You know, and it's has, it ends up having the same effect, you hope. You know, you hope you're getting the audience to feel a certain way. Um, but it's accomplished more over time and more by weaving stuff together in a complex way versus making a few sounds that have... I mean, obviously, you still have to orchestrate the track on Thor. And in a way, it's even more complicated because it's big and loud and you have to compete with music and all that. But it's, it's sort of, at least from my perspective, you know, doing the sound design job, it's micro-focused for me on making sounds and then cutting them in and working with the editors to weave them together, but my creative process is more focused on events versus the whole, you know, a whole scene. Like sometimes just making specific sounds, if you, you know, once you've found the right ideas, I don't want to say it's easy, but it's like, it's certainly satisfying, you know, once you get that going. But then there's a huge satisfaction from sitting back and watching a whole scene or a whole movie and going like, that movie really feels good. You know, it's got a good vibe. I think we nailed the vibe. So I couldn't say which one I like better. I mean, if, if I liked one much more than the other, I'd probably focus on doing that all the time. But as it is, I really like doing both. Well, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us sure. today. You've been really great. Good luck with Planet of the Apes. Thank you. Excellent. All Thanks. Right. Thanks for listening to Tonebenders. Find us online at tonebenders.net, where you can see our archives and leave a comment or a tip. If you listen on iTunes, please write us a review while you're there. Follow us on Twitter at the Tonebenders, or email us at dc, timothy, or renee at tonebenders.net. Yeah.